Thank you, team. Please be seated if you're not already seated. Some of you sit like I do, a little bit slower. That's okay. Want to be careful. I absolutely love being a part of the community that gets to celebrate Christmas. If you're new, and that sounds weird, I'm Jewish, so that was strange for me. I wasn't a part of it growing up. And when I was growing up, I was just so jealous of everyone who got to celebrate Christmas. Like, it's a great holiday. Every year, my family was invited to a friend's Christmas party, the D'Angelo's, an Italian family down in Miami. And they did the traditional feast of the seven fishes. You familiar with this? Whew, man. I looked forward to that night all year. It's always fun also to figure out how they were going to interpret that. You know, what were the seven fishes going to be? See, when you grow up Jewish, you don't have anything like that. There was nothing like that. I mean, sure, we had Hanukkah, which, okay. I've talked to you about Hanukkah before. It's a holiday. It's not one of the biblical holidays. In fact, the only place in the Bible that's even mentioned is in in the Hebrew Bible. It's actually in the New Testament. But it's not the same. I mean, greasy potato pancakes and dry pastries and eight nights of shirts and socks and underwear. It doesn't compare. But even though I loved Christmas, I really had no clue about what Christmas meant. And as I said last week, I knew the basics of the story. Most people know the basics of the story. But the meaning of the story, I had no idea about. I couldn't find it anywhere, and and that was okay. But quite frankly, I didn't know there was a meaning that I was missing. I didn't know there was any meaning to the story. But when I became an adult, whenever that was, it's kind of a moving scale, I'm not sure. My wife would tell you I still haven't achieved that yet, but I tried. But when I became a Jesus follower, I did eventually learn about the Christmas story But even though I'd finally heard the information, I still remained a bit skeptical. I mean, the details surrounding the birth of Jesus are pretty unbelievable. And at the very least, the elements of the story are things that just don't happen. But as we saw last week when we started this series, Who Needs Christmas? The thing that actually makes the story believable is that the story is so unbelievably remarkable. If you're going to fake a believable story, you wouldn't make it the story that we have. You'd come up with something a lot more plausible. Because the Christmas story doesn't begin with a young couple trying to figure out where they're going to have a baby. It begins with an elderly couple wondering if they'll ever have a baby at all. It doesn't begin with a young couple trying to figure out how could they possibly be pregnant. It begins with an elderly couple that are certain they're never going to get pregnant. It begins when God appeared to an elderly man named Abram, who we know of as Abraham, about 2,000 years before Jesus was born. And a promise was made to him in the book of Genesis Not in the Gospels, not in Luke, and not in Matthew. And the promise 
that God made to Abram, to Abraham, was this. Through you, Abram, all the people of the earth will be blessed. God promised Abraham that the entire world would be blessed through him. Because God determined that the entire world needed to be blessed. The entire world needed Christmas. But as it turns out, it wasn't only the world that needed Christmas. Now, I'm going to say something that might sound controversial at first, might sound a bit off at first, but once I develop the point, you'll understand what I'm getting at. But it wasn't just the entire world that needed Christmas. God needed Christmas as well. Now, before I explain what I mean, let me say what I don't mean. Okay, I am not saying, so if you're starting to email me already, don't. I'm not saying, implying, or inferring in any way that God needs anything, okay? I'm not saying that God needs anything in the way that people need anything. God is almighty. He is omnipotent, all-powerful, omniscient, knows everything, omnipresent, is everywhere. He is the creator of the world, and he is the sustainer of the world. God is and has always been and will always be. So, I want to be clear about this. In that sense, of course, God doesn't need anything more. Okay, does everyone have that? Oh, good, because I don't want anyone to think that I own oh, no, a heretic and all that stuff. Okay, good. All right. But what I mean when I say God needed Christmas is this. Now, I don't know whether kids today have ever heard the next phrase that I'm going to, to give you, but I heard it a lot when I was growing up. It usually preceded a beating. Anybody familiar with this? This hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. Every parent in America when I was growing up, said that. Now, when you hear this as a child, do you believe it? No, you absolutely don't believe it. As a child, you can't even see how it could possibly be true. When you're a child being punished by your parents, all you can think about is how much the punishment hurts you and how unfair. You like that word? That's unfair, right? You think how unfair your parents are being by punishing you. I can just remember the excuses. What are you doing? I'm not as bad as Jim. I'm not as bad as Bobby. I'm not, like, why are you punishing me? But as a parent, it's a different story. And even though the phrase isn't used anymore, the sentiment is still accurate. Sometimes, as parents, we have to correct our children in the moment in order to protect them for the future. And here's what I mean. Now, if you're a good parent, and, and I know you guys here that are parents, and I know that you're all good parents, but if you're a good parent, this has happened to you. You're walking on the sidewalk, you're holding your child's hand, and your child breaks free, lets go of your hand, and bolts for the street. Familiar with that one? So what do you do? You raise your voice, and you scream out for your child, stop! And then you lunge toward your child. You lunge toward him or her, and you firmly grab a hold of their arm, and you safely pull them back into your control. And then, after you've safely pulled your child back under your control, your child spends the next hour or so with their head down, acting all mopey, 
as they exclaimed, you're always so mean to me. You guys heard that one before? And when you hear this, you know it's not true. You weren't being mean. You're protecting them. You're acting out of love. You're stopping your child from doing something they wanted to do because you knew that, notwithstanding their desire, notwithstanding their opinion, you were protecting them and you were helping them. They never understand that, do they? But you sure wish they would. If they knew just how much you love them, they would trust you. If only they could see themselves the way you see them, they would understand. And when I was thinking about that, it it sort of dawns on me that that's the way God, our Heavenly Father, also feels. I mean, think about it. We can't get our young children to understand our love for them. And we can't get our young children to trust us all the time. And we're physical beings. We're corporeal beings. We're standing right in front of them. And they're looking at us with their eyes. They can see us. We can tell them that we have their best interests at heart. And they can actually hear us with their ears. And yet they still don't believe us. But what about God? How does it work if you're God the Holy Spirit? How does it work if you're the invisible spirit of God? How does it work if you're not tangible, you're not corporeal, you're not audible? How does God, the creator of heavens and the creator of earth, communicate with his children? How does he communicate with you and how does he communicate with me? How he feels about us in a material world that has turned its back on him and has become so incredibly self-focused. How does God do that? Well, the answer is Christmas. The answer to how our invisible spirit God communicates how much he loves the world and how much he loves us, his creation, is Christmas. What does that even mean? Let's pray, and then we'll find out. Heavenly Father, thank you again for gathering us together this morning for the community you're building here at Hammock Street, for our ecclesia. God, we thank you for this time of year, the most wonderful time of the year. We thank you that we're focused now on how you sent Jesus, God the Son, to save us from our sin. We're focused on the joy that this time of year brings. We're focused on the love that we're to share with others. And God, as we study your word this morning, we would ask that you would continue to use it to open our hearts and minds and to allow us to draw closer to you. We thank you for this, God. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so now let's begin today by considering something that the Apostle Paul wrote to the followers of Jesus in Galatia. Galatia is a city in the Roman province of Asia. That's what they used to call it. It's now located in modern-day Turkey. Now, we've talked about Paul before, so you might recall that when we first met Paul, he was at the height of his career as a Pharisee, as an ultra-religious, ultra-observant Jewish scholar. He was a well-educated Bible scholar. He'd studied under the most prominent teacher of his time, a guy by the name of Gamaliel. And Paul was on a mission. He was on a mission to eradicate the followers of Jesus. But 
Paul became a follower of Jesus himself. I'm sure he was shocked by that. And he became a follower of Jesus by way of a miraculous event after God struck him blind on the road to Damascus. Just a little background here in Acts chapter 9. Then Ananias entered the house. Placing his hands on Paul, he said, Brother Paul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Paul's eyes, and he could see again, and he got up, and he was baptized. So that's just this brief little picture of of Paul's conversion that you read in Acts 9. Now, from that moment on, Paul began to see the Jewish scriptures that he had grown up on, that he'd become an expert in. He began to see them differently. And once Paul understood that God had sent Jesus into the world he understood how the whole Jewish scriptures, how the whole Hebrew Bible, how the whole Old Testament pointed to God's plan as to how he was going to fulfill his plan. When those scales fell from Paul's eyes and he became a Jesus follower, he saw clearly how God the Father introduced to the world the promised Messiah, the promised Savior, Jesus, God the Son. And so... In a letter he wrote to the believers in Galatia, Paul made a statement. And that statement sets up what we're going to be talking about this morning. So here's what he said in his letter to the Galatians. Here's what Paul said. When the set time had fully come, when God had determined that enough history had gone by, and he knew he could get the world's undivided attention, when the expanding empire of Rome had already exported its language and its culture and its civilization around the entire known world. When Rome had developed a highway system and a network of seaports, when Rome had established peace, we know that as Pax Romana, if you remember that from your history lessons, in places where there had never been stability and never been peace, when God determined that the world was primed to receive his message, when the set time had fully come, when God had determined that the temple system had essentially become corrupted, when money became more important than morality, when corruption was more prevalent than compassion, when the temple authorities had raised their need for power over the needs of God's people, when the world was precisely the way that God wanted the world to be in order to receive his message, God took his next step. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son. When the world had arrived at that place in human history where God knew that the thing he'd been communicating to his people for 2,000 years would not be overlooked and would not be forgotten, God sent his son. And here's the question that we're going to dig into today. Here's the question that is so important to Christmas, and that question is this, why? Why did God have to send somebody Why did God have to send a son? Why didn't God just send us an angel? Why didn't God just send us another messenger? Why did God have to send God the Son in a body? But it goes even deeper than that. We'll continue on in this Galatians 4. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So now the question expands a bit. It's not just why God in a body. 
But why God in a baby body? Why show up like all the rest of us have to show up? Why show up as one of us? Why did God show up not as a God who dictates the law, but as a baby born subject to the law? Think about it. God did not enter time and space. And when I say that, remember what I mean. God sits above time and space. God is not bound by or constrained by time and space. But God entered time and space. But he entered time and space and he didn't declare, ta-da, I am here. He didn't do that. He didn't say, from this moment on, all things will be different. He didn't do that. Instead, he was born as a baby, accountable to the law. If somebody was making this story up, if someone was making up the story of the arrival of a God-man, they most certainly would have at least given him some obvious, fantastic powers, no? Would have made him like this super baby? And then the Apostle Paul told us, as he was looking back at his own scripture, as he was looking back at his own history, and as he was looking back at everything that he'd been taught as a young boy, suddenly he saw it all differently. So Paul explained, when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to, to. God sent his son to do something. God sent his son with a specific purpose. God sent his son to. God sent his son in order that So why did God send Jesus? Why did God need Christmas? God needed Christmas to do what laws and regulations could not do. God needed Christmas to do what judges and prophets could not do. God needed Christmas to do what exile and punishment could not do. God needed Christmas to do what even the Jewish sacred text could not do. God was about to do something very personal. So God had to do something very relational. God was going to do something for you, and he was going to do something for me personally. And a messenger or a message wouldn't get it done. God wanted to do something personal, so God needed to do something relational. And in order to get it done, God needed Christmas to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. God wanted to move individuals. God wanted to move people into a personal relationship with himself. So at Christmas, God began the process of removing all of the obstacles to unrestricted fellowship with him. A relationship with God is so personal that God determined he had to come in person. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? How would we know where we stood with God if God had not come to stand with us? A message wouldn't do it. Another book of the Bible wouldn't do it. Another prophet wouldn't do it. Another miracle wouldn't do it. So at the right time, God didn't just tell us something. He showed us something. God knew that in order to stand the test of time, he'd have to do something so memorable, so remarkable, that it would be documented, that it would be written down and preserved so the people would know about it and the people would still be talking about it years later, hundreds of years later, thousands of years later. And here in America in 2022, more than 2,000 years after Jesus was born, what are we doing? 
We're talking about it. We're talking about how 4,000 years ago, God promised that he would bless the world through the line of Abraham. And we're talking about how 2,000 years ago, Jesus was born. And today, 2,000 years after that fact, we're still seeking after God. That is bananas, isn't it? I mean, think about that. Think about all the things that have happened, that have transpired over the last 2,000 years. Can you name them all? Of course not, right? We can name some of them. We can't name all of them, of course. And in fact, there are countless things that happened in the last 2,000 years throughout history that we know nothing about. So many things have happened throughout the world in 2,000 years. We don't know all of it. And yet we know all about the birth of a Jewish baby born in the armpit of the Roman Empire. Nobody wanted to go to Judea. It was the worst assignment they had. But everyone in the whole world knows about this baby. When the set time had come, when God knew it would not slip through the cracks of history, he sent his son into the world, born of a woman, to redeem those under the law so that we might experience sonship, so that we might be adopted into the family of God. God knew that it had to be a demonstration that would be documented and preserved so no one would ever forget it. You want more? Look at this. He wrote a letter to the believers in Rome. It's one of his most complex letters, the Apostle Paul. If you're looking for something difficult to read in the Bible, but something really rich, the book of Romans is your book. So Paul wrote this book to the believers who lived in Rome, to the, to the masses of people who within just a few years after Jesus had risen from the dead and appeared to those hundreds of witnesses, they had embraced Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So Paul, writing to his people in Rome, to God's people in Rome, said this in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates. God shows us. God didn't just tell us. God shows us. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This was the exact event the prophets foretold. This was the precise event that the sacred Hebrew text foreshadowed. And this was the event that in Jesus, God demonstrated and documented for the entire world. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now think about this. This will boggle your mind. When Paul wrote this, it was a current event. God had acted in Paul's lifetime. See, when we read this, while we were still sinners... We think, wow, Jesus died 2,000 years before I even existed, millennia before I ever sinned. But when Paul wrote this, it was very personal. It dawned upon him that Jesus died for him at the exact same time that he was actively sinning, that he was actively going after Jesus' followers. Just imagine what Paul must have been thinking. He's thinking, well, I was still sinning? While I was still resisting and trying to eliminate Jesus' followers, indeed, before I even knew that God had actually sent his son into this world, while I was still sinning, Christ died for me? I mean, that's amazing. This was in Paul's lifetime. This must have rocked Paul to his core. 
Imagine. He must have been thinking, wow, even though God knew the darkness that was in my heart and what I was doing when I was arresting Jesus' followers and having them put to death, he still died for me. And that's the point. Jesus' death was a demonstration of just how much God was for us. But the question that still begs to be asked is why? Why did Jesus have to die? And why was such a violent and public demonstration necessary? Why were the beatings and the humiliation and the torture and the crown of thorns necessary? And why did it all have to be so public? Why didn't Jesus just show up and pronounce everybody forgiven? Wouldn't that have been easier? Why didn't Jesus just do that? Because nobody would have believed him. In fact, two times in the Gospels, in Luke 5.20 and in Luke 7.48, if you want to look those up, after Jesus had performed a miracle and he'd healed somebody, he said this. He said, your sins are forgiven. And the religious leaders lost their minds. Not because he healed anybody, mind you, but because he told them their sins had been forgiven. If, he, if they lost their minds because he'd healed somebody, they could have gone, wow, how'd you do that? But they lost their minds because no man had the power to forgive sins. That power was reserved for God alone. So Jesus had simply made a pronouncement, listen up, listen up everybody, your sins are forgiven. If he had done that, nobody would have believed him. They didn't believe him when he said it before, and they wouldn't have believed it if he said it again. And if no one would have believed him, if no one would have taken him seriously, and his words wouldn't have survived the first century then. Because if somebody had just given us words, people would have said, eh, he's crazy. Only a crazy person would say they can forgive sin. But more importantly, and here's the main reason that God sent his son into the world as a baby, to grow up among the people, to grow up as one of the people, and to die such a public, visible, noticeable, violent death, and for it to be documented so thoroughly that we're still talking about it today, it's because God is the author of life, which means that God is the author of, author of your life, and God is the author of my life. And that brings us to the message of Christmas. When you dishonor the author of life, you dishonor God. And dishonoring the author of life is an expression of ingratitude, deserving the forfeiture of life. In other words, we owe God our lives. And when we disregard him, we forfeit our right to life. That's why every day, every single one of us should get up and say, God, thank you for my life. I'm here to serve you today. I'm here to serve you every single day. It's not a given. Seriously. How could we say no to the God who gave us life? How could we say no to the God who gave us the opportunity to live? And yet, as we all know, we do that. We do it every single day. Though we didn't choose our birth, the day that we're born, and we hopefully won't choose the day that we leave this earth, somehow, within the bookends of a life, in that space in which God gives us this gracious gift of life, we shake our fist at him. We don't listen to the things he told us, to his dictates. We, we ignore the promptings that we receive from God. We disrespect God's image bearers, each other, the people that God has created in his image. And we all insist on doing things in our own way, in our own timing. God has given us a gift that we could never afford to pay for. 
but we live as if we're entitled to this gift. But he's given us this gift, notwithstanding the fact that we don't deserve it at all. We go back to Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. After Jesus died, he returned and he rose from the dead. Appearing to his followers, here's what Jesus said in Acts 1. Don't leave Jerusalem. It's a dangerous place, but don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the gift my father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And with that, Jesus ascended to heaven. Well, the Holy Spirit arrived shortly thereafter on the day of Pentecost, the holiday of Shavuot, if you know the Old Testament. And a short time later, the believers began to leave Jerusalem. They began to venture out of Jerusalem. They began to venture into those very same streets where Jesus had been arrested and dragged to the cross and crucified. And in those very same streets were the same people who had Jesus arrested, who had him crucified. Well, among the followers were Peter and Andrew and James and John and all the rest of the disciples. And here's what Peter said to all the people that had Jesus arrested and crucified. Here's what Peter said. You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. Peter said, when Jesus was on trial... Pilate offered to spare Jesus' life, but you people were so corrupt, you chose a murderer, you chose Barabbas, you chose someone who had taken life over the man who came to give life. And when the perpetrators heard that, they were stunned. And then Peter told them this, you killed the author of life. In his statement, Peter implied that God allowed you to kill the author of life that the author of life gave his life away. But you can't take the life of the author of life. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. God sent his son into this world in a baby body to grow up like us and to grow up among us so that he could give what we would not and could not give. And we owe our lives to the author of life. We owe our lives to the giver of life. Jesus' death demonstrated the magnitude of our ingratitude, the severity of our offense. We disregarded the author of life, so we deserve to lose life. We abused the supplier of life, so we deserve to lose the supply. Jesus' death demonstrated the magnitude of our ingratitude as well as the magnitude of his love for us. You see, love must be shown to be known. That's why we talk about love languages, you know, if you've ever gone through the love languages series. People need to see that love. They need to have it shown to them so that they understand how love works. Words are cheap. I always used to tell my kids when they were young, don't tell me you're going to do something. Show me you're going to do something. We say, I love you so casually in this society that we've just rendered it meaningless. But love must be shown to be known. And you can't demonstrate love without a sacrifice. It's got to be some kind of sacrifice. So how did God, who claimed to love the world, how did God, who made us in his image, how did God demonstrate at a personal level his love for us? The only way he could. He made a sacrifice that we would know about because you can't demonstrate great love 
without great sacrifice. You'll never know how much someone really cares for you until you see how much they're willing to sacrifice for you. God demonstrated his great love for you through a great and necessary sacrifice. Paul wrote, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now that's what I meant when I said that God needed Christmas. God needed Christmas to demonstrate and document his love for us, his rebel race. Otherwise, how would we ever have known? But when the set time had fully come, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. When everyone had given up hope, when nobody was looking for it, when the set time had fully come, when the Roman Empire had laid the groundwork for the message to be distributed, when the temple system had become so corrupted that it was hard to even take seriously, and when the people thought, if that's what God is like, there must be no more God. When the set time had fully come, a Jewish builder discovered his fiancée was pregnant. And he was trying to figure out, what do I do now? And the angel of the Lord spoke to him and said this. Because her husband was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, the set time has fully come. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet Isaiah, as Matthew quotes, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him. Can you feel the tension? And they will call him. Everybody leans forward in their chair. This was the moment we've been waiting for. This is the moment when the big God out there, the God of the universe, became the God who is so very personal, so very intimate for us. This is the moment when the God of the whole universe became the God of grace for us. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God is with us. So God staged a demonstration and he documented it so the whole world would know, so that 2,000 years later, we would know. God knew that we needed to see it, to believe it. We needed to know that was the story about us. And it wasn't enough to just say it. He had to send his son to pay the price that we owed in such a way that once we embrace the truth of the story, once we embraced who Jesus was, we would never, ever doubt God's love for us again. He had to be with us so we could know he was for us. We needed a demonstration, so God needed Christmas. And as it turns out, someone else needed Christmas as well. And that's where we'll pick up next week.